If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 34 as we continue to roll along, not quite at the pace with which we've been rolling along uh, up to this point, but primarily because we see such an important section. And Ezekiel is such a unique book of prophecy because there's this whole section that we've come through up until chapter 33 that has been, again, prophetic judgment propounded primarily upon the nation of Israel, Judah, and Jerusalem specifically, and then the nations secondarily. And now we've come to this time as we got to section or to chapter 33 where chapter 33 began those first 20 verses with the repeated message of the watchman and the necessity for Ezekiel as the watchman to be faithful to proclaim God's coming judgment and to proclaim repentance for these that he was ministering to in Babylon, those exiles by the river Kibar. It tells us again, as he repeated that, that it's a very individual ministry. This is not like the rest of the prophets, where they are speaking almost exclusively in nationalistic terms, with the rare exception of a judgment that is brought against one of the kings. Ezekiel's ministry is to the individual members that are in that exiled community by the Kibar River there in Babylon. In verses 20 to 21 of chapter 33, we saw the coming refugee, that the Lord brought a vision to Ezekiel to tell him that tomorrow morning that there would be a refugee that would come and he would tell all of the exiles of the destruction of Jerusalem. Their beloved city was gone and done and razed. And in flames. But he had one night to bring a message of encouragement and of hope. And his lips were unleashed for the first time. Prior to that, he could only speak when God had told him that it was acceptable for him to do so. Chapter 33 concluded with the strong warning to the nation as a whole. Ezekiel is still dealing with an individual ministry, but in that case we saw a nationalistic warning for them to turn back to God. And so he began that night message with that strong warning. Chapter 34 launched with judgment upon the shepherds. First time we had seen that group called out. It wasn't like we might consider shepherds today as pastors or elders Rather, it was a broad term in the Old Testament that referenced any of the leaders. Religious leaders or national political leaders were all often referenced as shepherds. So now we came back to an individual judgment upon these individuals who were not caring forward and caring for the flock. Then in verses 11 to 16, we turned the corner sharply. And last week, we saw the first section of blessing. So Ezekiel brings these two strong warnings, one nationalistically to the entire country, and the next one to the shepherds, and then he begins to speak about the blessings in verses 11 to 16. And and he begins to tell about how, although there have been the wicked shepherds that have not done the job, now there was going to be the good shepherd. The one who was going to seek out his flock. 
those that would not be searched or sought out by the shepherds, he would go out and he would find. He would bring them in from wherever they were scattered. He would care for them. He would feed them. And the feeding that we saw was an exorbitant feast. I don't know what you did for Easter. I hope it was large with much more than you could or should eat and that you indulged abundantly and if you did so as I did then that was just the tiniest part of this banquet that God is preparing for the nation of Israel as he takes them as the text tells us in verses 13 to 14 to the mountains of Israel as he brings them to their own land as he brings them by the streams and feeds them in all the good pasture and grazing ground and that he feeds them where they will lie down and feed on the rich pasture again not that the people will be eating the grass this is a metaphorical picture of the flock of these sheep we went to Isaiah and we looked in Isaiah 26 at the rich banquet that the Lord speaks of there. One of marrow and wine and fine aged wine. And this brings it more into a, a human conception of terms. And in all of these things we saw that there was an eschatological element. So the blessings that were coming and God finding his sheep and bringing them out is an end times prophecy. This is not what happened 70 years after the captivity when Ezra and Nehemiah and Zechariah went back to begin the rebuilding of the second temple. That is not what he's speaking about here. This is end times prophecy and we know that because of many of the different references that are here and the fact for instance verse 15 i will feed my flock and i will lead them to rest well the nation of israel is certainly not under rest although they have been back in the land now for around 2400 years but there has yet been no rest so we're still seeing a future time even to our day as we move through this, this section of blessings, then we move to the, the, the next section, which is continual blessings that go on before us. And we see now that we move from nationalistic to individual. Remember, there's a pattern that he's forming here. When he started, when we came into the first night message at, the, at Ezekiel 33, 23, and down to the end of 33, it was nationalistic. The beginning of 34, it was individual. When we looked at the blessings in 11 to 16, they're nationalistic. It's a national restoration. Shows us the confirmation that Israel has a place in the end times. That is going to be, this is a pivotal piece for us to understand. Everything that we're going to see when we get to the end of the book ties off this point. That this is a national restoration of the children of Israel. Well now, as we get to our text for tonight, there is a transition of this. And it moves from national to individual. Now we can relate to this in our New Testament conception as well. For instance, when we think of God's protection. God's protection of the church and God's protection of us individually. We know that God will protect the church. Matthew 16, 18. 
Uh, and the text before that is Peter makes his great profession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And the Lord says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And he goes on in 1618 to say that you are Peter and upon this rock being the rock of the physical presence there that they are at at, at uh, Philippi, Caesarea Philippi, that it is that huge rock structure that he is going to build his church upon and the gates of hell will not stand against it. So we know that God is going to protect his church. And that's wonderful. But how much better is it, how much more personal is it when we go to texts like Hebrews 13.5 and the Lord says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So that we know that there is a personal element that is being brought forward. And this same refocus is what we're seeing here. God now becomes not just the protector of Israel, but the protector of every true Israelite. And we'll see what that means as we move along. We now continue then with the concluding section of this chapter. And I've titled it, The Individual Message of Blessing. The Individual Message message of blessing the the individual nature of ezekiel's ministry we've spoken about and now this individual message of blessing is such a delight because now we're seeing and we'll see tonight god's overarching care of the individuals which not only applies to these that are the true israelites but by extension applies to all true believers through the application of this text. The first point in our message tonight, I've titled, One Sheep. One Sheep, in verses 17 to 22. Let's look, uh, take a look at verses 17 to 19, just uh, to begin with. Follow along as I read Ezekiel 34, beginning at verse 17. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will judge between one sheep and another between the rams and the male goats. Is it too slight a thing for you that you should feed in the good pasture, that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pastures, or that you should drink of the clear waters, that you must foul the rest with your feet? As for my flock, they must eat what you tread down with your feet and drink what you foul with your feet. We begin with the major emphatic statement there in verse 17. Behold, as for my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold. And so when we see behold, we are ready to behold and to understand and to grasp what's here. The initial audience is revealed here as my flock. All are called as part of the flock but all are not true believers. So when he is speaking to all of his flock, he is not speaking to all of the nation of Israel. Everyone in Israel will not be saved as a result of this proclamation. They are the ones that are his flock, that are the true Israelites. The same as we've seen in the book of Hebrews. As you remember, there are three audiences in the book of Hebrews. There are the unbelievers who know that they are not believers in Christ. There are the believers who are true believers in Christ. And then there are the others that are amongst them that are the attenders that think they know the Lord, 
but do not. Well, there were no unbelievers in the nation of Israel because you couldn't outright reject God or you would be thrown out of the nation. Now, there were many that acted that way. There were many of the pretenders and there were the real believers. So now we're speaking about the real believers and it is the unbelievers that are, or the false believers, if you will, that are being called out as opposed to those. So all are called as part of the flock, but all are not true believers. And, and this is what's indicated between one sheep and another. It's individualistic. He will look at the individuals that are within the flock. The word sheep here, interestingly and beautifully, is actually the word lamb. So he will go between his lambs. Further indication comes in the distinction between the rams and the male goats. The strong, which are the proud and the arrogant. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew 25, 31. Keep your finger here in Ezekiel 34. And turn to Matthew 25 and verse 31. Here in the Olivet Discourse, chapters 24 and 25 of Matthew, the Lord is at Thursday night of the Passion Week. They have left the Mount of Olives, and he is in the garden, and he is looking across at Jerusalem, and the disciples ask when these things will come about, that one stone will not be left upon another. And the Lord launches into this glorious explanation of the end times and of the eschaton. And as he does so, he comes to this section in Matthew 25 and verse 31. Look at it with me. I'm going to read a few verses here. Matthew 25 and 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Jump down with me to verse 41. Verse 41. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. This is the judgment that occurs immediately before the millennial kingdom is established. This is after the battle of Armageddon, when the Lord stands in judgment at those that yet remain. And judge between the sheep, those that are believers that have yet remained upon the earth through the tribulation, and the unbelieving goats that are there. This is not the great white throne judgment. That judgment occurs at the end of the millennium. So make, sure we, make sure, certain that we recognize that there are these two judgments that are going on. And the judgment that we're speaking about here that's referenced in Matthew is exactly the one being talked about in Ezekiel 34. So the Lord has told us that this is the judgment before the thousand year reign of Christ, which makes sense and perfectly fits with the context of the rest of Ezekiel. Verse 18, back in Ezekiel chapter 34, 18 and 19 actually, further discuss the differences between the sheep. 
God rebukes them for not honoring the gift of the good pasture. Now, this is a metaphorical reference to Israel's individual land allotments. What is he saying here? Now, I, again, I don't know how much time y'all have spent around uh, agriculture or around livestock particularly. Um, in, in Idaho, in Montana, uh, because the winters are very severe, the, the cattle are brought near into the areas sometimes where there's barns, where it's extremely cold and where there's a lot of snow, or they're kept in, in fields that are very close to the ranch. But in the summer, they'll be taken up into the rangeland up in the hills. And we'll, we'll herd them out there, still on horses, just like in the westerns. And when they're up in these fields and they're roaming around, they're free-ranging. And they'll move in and out of creeks and around. And what you find out is when you find particular crossings that are going on or the areas where a lot of these cattle will congregate or stay together or sheep will do the very same thing, of course, even more so will they band together, it's quite a mess where they're hanging out. Um, done a lot of biking and mountain biking in those areas and when you're riding your bike through an area where there have been quite a bit of sheep, well, not only is it smelly, but it can be a little messy. And that's exactly what he is referring to here. Why are you, because you're feeding in good pasture, must you tread down with your feet the rest of the pasture? Why do you have to go out and ruin the rest of the ground? In other words, or the metaphor is, you have been given beautiful allotments of land. And you have done very well on them. Why is that not enough for you? Why do you go, have, go to defile and take what is not yours on the other allotments or take advantage of others who are less well-to-do than yourselves on the other allotments? The overall metaphor that we're going to see here is really the rich versus the poor. And the rich are taking advantage of the poor. And the first analogy that we're shown or the for, first form of metaphor or symbolism is this idea of a pasture. He goes on and says, or that you should drink of the clear water that you must foul the rest with your feet. You know, as I have seen in different parts of the world, particularly third or what I like to call fourth or fifth world countries, when you go to the water systems, often large rivers, you will see areas where the women are upstream and they are washing the clothes or people are using the river as effectively a sewer system. And then you go down the river and there are people taking water out to drink and to prepare food. And you go, uh, Houston, we have a problem here? And that's exactly the picture that's being painted for us. You go in and you drink the good water, but you foul everything downstream. You rich people, you, you just come in and you abuse the, the gift of this water source. They're partaking of their own and spoiling the rest. This is exactly what we see in the parable of the widow's might where she gives her last might at the offering. This is, this is abuse by the religious system. This is not godly giving. God would never require us to give our last cent such that we were penniless and had no means of survival. That is not the God that we serve. He does not need our riches to that extent. They are his after all anyway. And it is the same idea here. 
Verse 19 confirms that the poor are getting only the dregs as it talks about that the flock must eat what they have treaded down and drink what they have fouled. Verses 20 to 22 carry forward the focus in our first point where it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I, even I, will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, because you push with side and with shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns until you have scattered them abroad. Therefore, I will deliver my flock, and they will no longer be a prey, and I will judge between one sheep and another. The Lord's judgment here in verse 20 is a restatement of verse 17, and it provides more emphasis to the fact that in both cases, there is one who will be judging. Furthermore, the excesses of the one group are described as fat. They are those who are bloated because of all that they have taken in in their riches versus those who are lean and who have less that they have been able to take advantage of. Verse 21 carries forward the way in which the rich were exalting themselves, not only destroying the provision of the poor, but bullying them. The picture is is of, of rams butting against one, laying their side into one and moving it over or hitting them with the shoulder or lowering and pushing them with their horns. Uh, you know, we've all seen the, the commercials or the National Geographic shows of the bighorn sheep, you know, banging their heads together and the huge echo that goes from it. It's that kind of bullying that's going on here. But the Lord's response is in verse 22. I will deliver Remember how we recognized back at the beginning of chapter 34, the false shepherds? And how they, we didn't have to worry about those conditions today because God is the one who is going to judge. He is the one who is in charge of all of these and overseeing all of it. Well, that is exactly the same situation that we see here. God will deliver. They will no longer be a prey. No longer will they be those who the rich are taking advantage of because they have not had the wealth or they have not had the esteem. The the fat and the rich and the, the prideful will no longer come and tromp all over them. And he says, I will judge now the third time that he has proclaimed his judgment. With these verses, we see that the individual aspect of each sheep has been established. That it is not a national condition. That God is looking at each one, their offenses and their righteousness. And that God will judge the individual in like manner. And now we transition from the individual affected both in protection and judgment to the one that is doing the protection in our second point. Our second point is one shepherd one shepherd we went from one sheep now to one shepherd in verses 23 and 24 verses 23 and 24 really bring the second component of the individual message of blessing to the front take a look at these two verses with us then i will set over them one shepherd my servant david and he will feed them He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. 
and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. One shepherd is the same shepherd referenced back in verses 11 to 16. Back where we see that it is the Lord God himself that is moving this forward. God who will be their shepherd. Uh, this, of course, is the Lord Jesus, which Revelation 7, 17 confirms. In Revelation 7 and verse 17, it says, For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear. The shepherd that is coming forward is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the water here that's being spoken about is the same that we saw back in Ezekiel 34, 13. They are the good streams that the Lord took them by. This is, this is what God is bringing. He is bringing this beautiful provision, this incredible measure of blessing. Dr. Feinberg notes that the repeated usage of one is doubtlessly an allusion to the former separation of the two kingdoms. Well, we remember that separation, don't we? Back to the time of Solomon. And remember after Solomon passed off the scene, his son Rehoboam took over in his place and was made king. But Jeroboam, who had been exiled, came back and said, Rehoboam, if you will but lower the burden of taxes that you have placed upon us, we will be your servants. But Rehoboam will not. He listens to his senior counselors and they say to Rehoboam you know that that's good counsel you should do that because that's a right thing your father was a little hard on these people but then he goes and talks to his young buck counselor buddies and they say no you tell them that you, that your father was nothing and that you have twice the strength that he does and of course and unfortunately Rehoboam follows his younger counselors and the nation splits. Here we see the illusion through the one flock and the one shepherd of a restoration of those nations. Again, we're speaking about eschatological end times. These will be united as Ezekiel 37, 24 shows. Look, look at a couple chapters ahead with me. Ezekiel 37 and verse 24. As you turn ahead to that place, we see that vision that we know so well of the valley of dry bones. And we're going to get to that shortly, and it is a brilliant prophecy. But in Ezekiel 37 and 24, my servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. So it is this one shepherd that's coming forward to bring this to fruition. The, the bones that are there that are being spoken about, again, are the children of Israel that are being reanimated and brought back to life. Yet the same reference is brought forward in the New Testament. We see it in John ten sixteen, And instead there, of the two nations of Israel and Judah being brought back together, as we just read in Ezekiel 37, John has another reference. Listen to John chapter 10 and verse 16. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. 
I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Who's that? That's you. That's right, Parrish. That's you. That's me. We are that those other sheep that he must take that message to. So as this is in Ezekiel, a national restoration, there is yet a future element where there will be another flock brought in. That's going to really bear a lot of weight as we continue to unravel the ideas that are behind these promises. But the context of our verses remains the same. It is the nation of Israel and particularly the individuals within it. Two times in verse 23 we're told of David's feeding. Not only does the repetition show emphasis, but even the form of the verb, he will feed them himself, is so emphatic in those particular verses. I will set one shepherd over them, my servant David. He will feed them. He will feed them himself. It is just, it is like, don't wonder about who's going to do this. There is one that will do it, and it is this one who is my servant David. And that verb for feed is the one that we saw all the way back in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 34. It actually is the verb that means to pasture to shepherd, to tend. It is to fully care for. And that's emphasized at the last clause in verse 23 where it says, and be their shepherd. He also will be their shepherd. We notice also that the shepherd is given a new title, isn't it? My servant, David. Some have strongly assumed that the repeated mention of feeding and this title are revealing the gathering of all believers into the church age. That's called covenant theology, and that is erroneous. This context is not at all speaking about another flock. That does not come forward until the New Testament. This is specifically and only about Israel. We've just seen that in the previous section as a reference to Israel alone. Look back at verse 13. How can you make this all of the nations? Verse 13 says, out of the peoples I will bring them. That peoples is a reference to all of the peoples of the earth. So there is a separation going on. Well, some will say, yeah, that's just a a reference to the unsaved peoples versus the saved. Okay, If that's all we had, that would be an argument. But it also says in verse 13, to their own land. Okay, well, there is no land for anyone other than the nation of Israel. Why? Abrahamic covenant. We're going to be talking about that this weekend. See, that is what is being prophesied as becoming and being fulfilled. Those others never had a part in the land. And that's not it in verse 13. In fact, in both verses 13 and 14, there's a reference to the mountains of Israel. This is strictly about nationalistic Israel. It is not believers, but it is exclusively the nation of Israel or most appropriately, those of Israel that are true Israelites. My servant David is a reference to Messiah. Some commentators have said, oh, this might be a resurrected David, but there's nothing in any of the text or scripture to support that. However, 
We see a Messiah as referred to as David many times in the Bible. If you're taking notes, you want to do a little study, go look at Isaiah 55 and verses 3 and 4. Isaiah 55, 3 and 4 speaks about Messiah and labels him as David. Also in Jeremiah 23, 5. In fact, let me just read Jeremiah 23, 5. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. A righteous branch? Does that prick our ears and bring them to attention? Isaiah 11.1, the, the righteous branch that is the root of Jesse. This again is a reference to Messiah. Hosea 3.5 also makes reference to the same connection as do other scriptures. That was Hosea 3.5, if you're noting. There's also a connection here to the Davidic covenant. And I want to quickly turn there and kind of whet your appetite a little because we're going to be going to the Davidic covenant in our Sunday messages. So turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is the text that uh, contains the Davidic covenant. It begins with God's correction of Nathanael for his encouragement to David in verses 1 through 7 to go ahead and build a house for God. And then in verse 8 of 2 Samuel 7 begins the text that we frequently reference as the Davidic covenant. We'll get into all of the details of this, but I want to point out a few things to you, and maybe you'll start doing a little studying of this section of text. 2 Samuel 8, or 2 Samuel chapter 7, rather, is Nathan the prophet that is speaking. So we have to understand that context. This is now a fully prophetic passage. When we talk about prophecy, remember the rules of prophecy. Even within the same verse, there can be near fulfillment and long-range far fulfillment. So as we think about that, listen to a few of these words and ask yourself, where in this text is Messiah? Where in this text is Solomon? It's an incredibly interesting study. Let me read 2 Samuel 7, 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. Let's be clear there that my servant David there, same phrase, is speaking about King David. The context shows us that it is Nathan and David in a conversation. Verse 9. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them anymore. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete, and here's where we start to get into the meat of it, although if you do study this as good Bereans, back up to verses 6 and 7 and go through them as well. All right, back to verse 13, uh, verse 12 rather. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendants after you who will come 
forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. His kingdom, throne of his kingdom forever. Solomon? Messiah. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever, and your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. There is some great meat in that section of Scripture that relates specifically to not just Solomon as the son or offspring of David, but to Messiah. Look in the footnotes if you start doing this. Follow through the cross-references and look at some of, you know, sometimes how there's a word with a little number by it that says it's got a, a, a more accurate Hebrew translation. Look at that. There's some great stuff there. I don't want to give away our sermon in a couple weeks, so I'll just leave it to you to start doing a little digging in that area. But you'll find it'll bear much gold as you dive in. So as we see this idea of the son of David who is coming forward, this one who is my servant David and delineated as such twice, we see that he is that there is another amazing point here that there are two members of the trinity that are identified in verse 23 and this is brilliant because a lot of times we don't see distinction between members of the trinity but it happens for us here i will set over them one shepherd my servant david and he will feed them he will feed them himself and be their shepherd and i the lord will be their god and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. We have God the Father that is speaking and specifically delineating himself alongside of my servant David, Messiah. And that is an incredible little piece of, of nuanced scripture that shows us the way that God is working. God has proclaimed this and the Son is accomplishing it. He is the one who will carry it all forward and it, and it just launches forward and we'll get there as we move through the covenants in the coming weeks. But another great text to look at is to recognize as we've seen in Psalm 110 verse 1 where the Lord said to my Lord, I will make your enemies a footstool for your feet. We know that that is God the Father speaking to God the Son. That it is God the Son whom the Father will make all of his enemies a footstool for his feet. 1 Corinthians 15 and verses 24 to 28 then carry it forward and we see the transition from the Son as conquering all, the last enemy which will be conquered is death, and then He will give back to the Father all of the kingdom and He will submit to the Father. And it is, it is the most amazing picture that is occurring by the way at the transition we've just talked about how we're coming into the judgment at the beginning of the millennium first corinthians 15 and verses 24 to 28 is talking about the transition out of the millennium and into the eternal state 
And it is a fabulous little piece of, of just rich treasure, <coughs> excuse me, that shows us all of these interweaved details. Another thing we want to note, although there is so much here in these verses, is that we see that in verse 24, that my servant David will be prince among them. That word prince is going to have some particular meaning as we move ahead. Ezekiel uses that word a lot. You remember, if you've been with us through the study, that back at the beginning, he used that verse derogatorily towards Zedekiah because he was not the rightful king. He'd been made king by Nebuchadnezzar. And Ezekiel refused to call him a king in the lineage of the kings of David, but rather called him a prince. Well, now we're going to see a changing in this word prince, and you want to keep your eye on it as we move through this section of blessing. Because as we move here and all the way through the end of the book, it will have some additional and amazing detail. The verse ends with the culminating proclamation of God, I have spoken. Well, our third point takes us to the culmination of this great section of the individual message of blessing, and it is one covenant of one God in verses 25 to 31. As I began, I said that this was the concluding section of the blessings in this great chapter, but tonight doesn't look like it's going to be the conclusion of that concluding section because we are definitely out of time. So look ahead next week. There is much, much more in this section that is just going to really bless us and plenty for us to dig our teeth into. So spend some time. Start looking at 2 Samuel chapter 7. Start looking at 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 28. And start reading ahead in the rest of our verses from Ezekiel 34, 25 to 31.